Good morning, church. I'm Pastor Jay. It's good to be here. It is a joy to come back to a body of believers that we call our church family. As we were, if you're visiting with us this morning, Becky and I have been gone for a couple months on a sabbatical, which is always incredibly refreshing. We're very grateful to our elders who have a sabbatical policy for the pastors. But as we would talk to people along the way, we would tell them how much we loved our church family and how much uh, we valued being part of this church family. I want to show you just a couple slides to give you an idea like, what is this about? What do you do? Well, we drove a lot, and we stayed married, which was good. We drove about just under 7,000 miles down to everywhere from uh, uh, eastern Virginia, down into Florida, across all the way through Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and then started north again. And we were able to visit all kinds of different people. We started, I'll show you the next slide, where we often do uh, take our annual study break where I'm kind of finishing the menu for the next year preaching. It's a lot of organization and research and stuff, but we have friends that loan us a lake house in the mountains of South Carolina. And so we spent a couple weeks there doing a lot of reading, a lot of study, a lot of organization. Then we moved on to Virginia, to Appomattox, and you may... No, some of you do. Uh, Jim and Liz Baker, who served in the Ukraine for about 15 years, now are still with Reach Global, which is the Evangelical Free Church Missions, and they are in Appomattox and have a big heart for the uh, marginalized, disabled, disenfranchised, and so continue to minister out of Appomattox. We moved on from there to Liberty University in Lynchburg, and we're able to visit Cassie Brock daughter of uh, Les and Michelle. Les is one of our elders. And she gave us Tour of Liberty. What an impressive place. We'd never seen it before, and it was amazing. She's an incredible tour guide. From there, we moved on to uh, near Charlotte, North Carolina, to Waxhaw, which is the headquarters for JARS, Jungle Aviation and Radio Service, founded by Cameron Townsend, who also founded Whitcliffe. Woodcliffe Bible Translators, that was Cameron's heartbeat, but then to get the translators into remote regions, also started JARS, which manages airplanes. Uh, Paul is a small airplane mechanic. He did that in Lake of the Hills, and now he does it down there in North Carolina. And that was a privilege to go see that entire campus and what the, the ministry is. It's a huge ministry there at JARS. From there, we went down into Florida. Some of you will know the name of Dave and Sherry Cook. Dave was our head elder here, and he and Sherry, Sherry was on staff. And they were here for many, many years. And so they hosted us for a number of days and put up with us. And it was a delight to be with them and hike with them and hang out with them and catch up with them. And then from there, we went up to the villages. Never been in the villages, but we spent an afternoon with Pastor Bob and his new wife, Vicki. And they gave us a complete tour of the villages. And we had a nice meal with them. And they showed us around their church. He's on staff at an evangelical free church there in the villages. And just had a delightful time with them. From there, we continued on through the south, and we ended up in Memphis. We went to New Orleans and then up to Graceland. I don't know if you've been to Graceland. It is a very interesting place. A lot of Americana there. It's a, it, it is. If you've never toured it and you're in Memphis, it's worth it. It's also very sad to see somebody so talented, so gifted, and yet, you know, you can gain the world and you can lose your soul. And it was just, it was, it was a haunting, sobering place, but very interesting place to go through. While in Memphis, we also had the privilege, our children's director here, Heather Sukup, her folks live there, and they were willing and excited to sit down. And we were excited to sit down with them. Great couple. We, we got up from that lunch just totally energized 
They love the Lord. They're engaged in their church. They're really active in ministry. And so took us to Chuck's favorite barbecue place in Memphis, which his wife had never been to. So we got to go, and it was, a, it was delightful to go there and, uh, and sit down with a delightful couple. From there, headed north into Kentucky, and we visited Noah's Ark. If you have not been to the Ark Exhibition down there, it is worth going to and taking your kids. That thing is humongous, built to size according to Genesis. And it was a marvelous thing to walk through. The couple that took us through was a young couple that Becky and I had the privilege to be involved with years ago in her coming to Christ, baptizing her. Then she went to Moody, met Zach. Now they have six kids, and he actually helped build a lot of the exhibits in the ark. So as we're walking through and touring, he's pointing out all these obscure stuff inside the, the building there, inside the ark, uh, that he had helped build. And it was just a fascinating tour. So if you can go down there yourself or with your kids or grandkids, it is definitely worth it. From there, we went up then into Michigan, and we were able to visit our former church where we spent 23 years and had a delightful ministry. There we are actually in the Narthex there, and we just stopped by. We were only in Midland there for a couple hours. We stopped by to see our former house, see our former church. And then lastly, last, this is even just last Sunday, we were joining you live stream. I want to say a very special thank you. Uh, thankfulness for Marty Volts who filled in here for the 10 weeks while I was gone. Uh, Marty had agreed last year when we were supposed to go on sabbatical and suspended it because of COVID. He agreed again this year and very thankful for his ministry. We joined about half the time live stream. The other half the time we would then watch later, but we were well fed. I know you were well fed. And I sent him several notes just saying, thank you. That was a great sermon. I needed it. Becky needed it. Our flock needed it. Thank you for feeding us uh, so well. So having said that, live stream, as beneficial as it can be, it's nothing like being here. So if you're still staying home because of COVID, get here unless you have extreme circumstances. There is nothing like being live in corporate worship with the body of Christ. And we are so thankful for the privilege to do that. With that, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the first page inside the New Covenant, the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. We are obviously in Advent. Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, comes from the Latin Vulgate, the translation that stood for so many centuries in the history of the church, and it means coming. And this is the time of year on the church liturgical calendar when we celebrate the coming of Jesus, Messiah. That's the gospel who brought the gospel of redemption. Having said that, it's interesting as you go through the synoptic gospels especially, and especially Matthew, the Jesus we find in the gospels is virtually nothing like the Jesus that was expected, like the Messiah that was hoped for and anticipated by the Jewish people and by the people of the day. What do I mean? Some of you know pieces of this, but I want to try to put it together this morning in a, in, in a fuller picture. The Jewish people in the first century in Palestine were expecting a very specific kind of Messiah with a very specific resume, and I say that intentionally. They were looking for, let me use a couple different phrases, they were looking for a warrior Messiah, and that's not an exaggeration. They were, they had been, and the question is why? And the reason is because they had been under foreign occupation for decades. 
Now, if you've lived in the West, which I have all my life, it's very difficult unless you've lived in a, in a, in a, like a communist regime to know what it's like to live under foreign oppression. We don't know that. But you can only imagine that if a foreign you know, enemy came here and say North Korea or Iran or something, and they put their military all over the place and they were watching every move you made ready to, to throw you into prison if necessary at any given moment, you would understand the chafing, the hatred, the, the, the visceral reaction you would have to all that was around you all the time. That's what they lived with in ancient Palestine with Rome breathing down their neck, watching their every move, Roman soldiers in the streets. It was oppressive. And the people were desperate, absolutely desperate, for someone to come and deliver them. They were looking for a military liberator. They were, looking for, they were expecting a powerful leader. That's what they wanted in Messiah. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were craving. That's what they were longing for. And instead, when Jesus showed up, he shattered virtually all expectations. And this is especially shown to us in Matthew's gospel. It comes out really well in the synoptic gospels, but especially Matthew's gospel shows this. And what we find is that the Jesus in the gospels shows up with a very unexpected resume and a very unexpected agenda. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. You say, well, what, what was his agenda? Well, it had nothing to do with military liberation. He was not a warrior messiah. He had a different agenda. He came announcing things like the need to love one's enemies, forgive those who have betrayed us, faithfulness to our marriage vows, sexual purity, befriending the disabled, or identifying with the poor, or giving his life as an atonement for sin, or caring for the sick, or defending widows, reaching out to the marginalized, the nobodies. This comes out over and over and over again. And you can see very quickly, major disconnect with the expectations the Jewish people had for Messiah. So what we're going to do this morning, the time we have before we go to the Lord's table, is I want to dive into Matthew in a few spots and do a deep dive here and look at at least five extreme, five extreme unexpected aspects surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus to show you the disconnect. And it begins in chapter 1 with his unexpected family tree. If you look at chapter 1, I'm only going to read the first three verses. Matthew chapter 1. By the way, the Old Testament ends in a genealogy. You didn't know that perhaps, but the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible ends in Chronicles. And Chronicles begins with ten chapters of genealogy. Genealogy is very important in an ancient culture. As I've said, it's the modern-day equivalent of a resume. It's how you put your best foot forward. It's how you established who you were, your credentials, your character, your background, your tribe. This is your identity. And so you were very picky, very careful how you sculpted your genealogy. I mean, we all know we have relatives we wouldn't put in our, our genealogy or our resume, you know. And so you were very careful how you sculpted your genealogy. And with that in mind, the New Testament opens. There's two Gospels that open the genealogy, Matthew and Luke. And so as, you're, as I read the first three verses, think about Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, was very intentional about who he's putting in this list. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. 
Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah, his mother, was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. And on and on it goes. You have 13 more verses of names in the lineage of Jesus. A couple years ago, I preached a sermon just on these first 17 verses. I read all the names because each of them tells a story. Now again, remember this is put in here intentionally, and the name selection is intentional. There are names Luke includes that Matthew doesn't, likewise, vice versa. So the question is, well, why why these particular names? If, if you're trying to establish Jesus and his credentials and his standing and his place, why would you choose these names? And I say that because there's some pretty unsavory people mentioned in this. For example, verse 9, Ahaz, who was one of the most wicked kings in ancient Israel. You didn't have to put his name in this list. There's other ancestors that could have been chosen. Manasseh, also another very wicked king in verse 10. And as you go through this list, what you're going to see, it's made up of men and women, sinners and adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, Gentiles, all of whom need a Savior, including Jews who need a Savior. Why? Because the Bible says all have sinned. All means in Greek, all. (laughs) Every single human being has sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned. And those sins cut us off from God. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked and we have to have reconciliation with God or we will perish in judgment under His wrath. Matthew then does something even more shocking. And again, in an egalitarian Western individualized culture like we live in today, it's hard to translate this, but you didn't put women in a genealogy. This is a patriarchal culture. It's a hierarchical culture back then. It's very rare. Any historian, Christian or not, will tell you, you didn't put women in genealogies. And Matthew includes five, if you count the mother of Jesus who's here. The only one not mentioned by name is Bathsheba, but she's mentioned clearly by identity. So you have in verse 3, Tamar. She's mentioned in Genesis 38. She was a Gentile who was forced to have incest with her father-in-law. And then in verse 5, You have Rahab mentioned. She's a Gentile prostitute. Ruth is another non-Jew. In verse 6, you have Bathsheba. She's she's mentioned in 2 Samuel. She's a Gentile who committed adultery with David. David basically raped her. And you look at these people. Ahaz, Manasseh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. And the question is, if genealogies are selected by design, which they are, if they're very intentional and carefully sculpted, which they are, why would you include these kind of ancestral embarrassments, that's what they are, in the genealogy of Messiah? And the answer seems to be, I think, very obvious as you look at the Gospels, and that is that the Gospel writers, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen, young people, hear this, they want us to know This is a Messiah for the average, common, ordinary, moral, shame-filled sinner like us. That's why he came. Regardless of our crimes, some of us in this room have committed some pretty serious crimes. Regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our gender, there's only two, by the way, male, female. Regardless of our handicaps or our past or our social or economic standing in life, The gospel 
is the good news that Jesus is the Savior of ordinary, shame-filled sinners, moral failures like all of us. And that is why you see in the Gospels, and especially in Matthew, a relentless emphasis on Jesus coming for average nobodies like us. Moral failures, shamed, selfish, violent, dishonest, hopefully regret-filled sinners. His unexpected family tree. If you move on in chapter 1, come to the second unexpected aspect of his life, and that is his parents. His parents. I've said this before, but think about it for a minute. This is the only guy in history who got to choose his parents. Nobody else in history ever chose their parents. Now, I don't know if you'd choose different parents or not, but Jesus chose his parents, and he chose a very deliberate couple. Look at verses 18 through 23 of chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Messiah came about. His mother Mary, and Mary is a young teenager we know from history. She's probably somewhere between 13 to 16 years old in a very rural, nowhere village. This is how birth of Messiah Jesus came. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. This is a betrothal. It's more than a modern-day engagement. It's, it's, a, it's pretty much considered marriage, but it's not quite marriage. But before they came together in marriage, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Obviously, this is a major scandal in a little village. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So that, that, The point is, in betrothal, because it was even more than an engagement, you had to go through a divorce, even though you weren't fully married yet. That's how committed a betrothal was. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which is Hebrew, a couple Hebrew words, which means God with us. So children, young people, adults. Who did he choose as his mom and dad? And the answer is he chose a very young, dirt poor, obscure, nobody couple in the back province of Galilee. Once again, Matthew is driving home. The scriptures are driving home. The Holy Spirit is driving home. The gospels are driving home. That Jesus is the Savior for the common, ordinary, forgotten nobodies of the world like us. I want you to hear one verse. You don't normally associate this verse with Christmas, but I want you to hear who Jesus came for and who was on his heart and who was his target audience. Even as I read this verse this week, I asked the Lord forgiveness for my overreading things like this. Luke 14, Jesus said this. He said, when you give a luncheon or dinner, which we've all done, some of you are doing it today, don't just invite your friends, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. When you host a dinner, invite the poor, the crippled, 
the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. When you read the Gospels through a different lens, you start seeing this emphasis come out again and again and again and again. Third unexpected aspect of Jesus was his birth, chapter 2. He had a very unexpected birth. In fact, it was an extremely unexpected birth. Chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. So, an unexpected family tree, unexpected parents, and then unexpected birth. After Jesus, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, these, these are probably astrologers from uh, roughly what is Iran today, the Persian Empire. And you can tell that by their question. Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. And then they quote from the prophet Micah. That's verse 6 here. So Matthew's just quoting from Micah, the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. A number of years ago, on one of Queen Elizabeth's visit to the States, one newspaper reported that she had brought with her, among other things, 4,000 pounds of luggage. Two tons. Two outfits for every occasion, plus a morning outfit, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Forty pints of plasma, white leather toilet seat covers, her own hairdresser, her own valets, her own host of attendants, and on and on, to the tone of millions of dollars of British pound sterling. Contrast that with how God visited this planet in the person of Jesus when he became a man. Look at verse 6 again. He was born in Bethlehem. We know Bethlehem. Bethlehem is very famous to us for Christians in America. Even if we're not Christians in America, we sing about it every Christmas. Bethlehem in this day, back then, is nothing. I mean, again, a few hundred people. Nothing. It was about, it is about five, six miles from Jerusalem. It was an obscure, nothing, dirt poor village. Which raises the question that has to be asked, why would God choose those parents in that little village to be born in. Why would he pick such an obscure place? Probably a cave that the church in the nativity sits over today. Becky and I have been to that cave. It's in Nowhereville. Why would he choose it? I think there's at least two answers why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Number one is a biblical theological answer because we know Messiah had to come from the line of David, and that's David's hometown. And number two, it's to signal once again that he is the savior of the common, the ordinary, the forgotten, the marginalized, the disabled, the disgraced, the sinful, the despised, the nobodies of the world. This is not a minor theme in the Gospels. It comes out over and over and over again. Next is unexpected disciples. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. You turn to that. And he picked, by his own admission, he called them knuckleheads. Now, he didn't use that word in Greek, but several times 
he shamed them a bit by just saying that they're dull and basically dumb. I'm going to to read their list, and then I want to say a couple things about where they came from. Matthew 10, 1 to 4, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every sickness and disease. And here's the names of the 12 disciples. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors were despised. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and who always comes last in every list, and he's always said to be the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, these are very familiar names to us. Why, is it a new, why are these so unexpected? Well, if you're going to be Messiah and try to impact the world, this is probably the last group of guys normally we would pick, but he's Jesus and he's God, and so he knew exactly what he's doing. But right in the vicinity of where Jesus lived, in Nazareth, when he started his ministry, there are two large Roman cities that were very metropolitan in Urbane. One is Sepphoris, right over the hill from Nazareth. Beautiful. They have some of the most beautiful mosaics still anywhere in Israel today. If you walk through Sepphoris, the mosaics, the tiles are gorgeous. That was a large Roman city. Obviously, had some very sophisticated people there. It was, it was just over the hill from Nazareth. He could have gone over there and picked some probably pretty sophisticated guys. A little further away, Bethshan, which is a huge Roman city. It's the largest archaeological dig today in Israel. It's very impressive, very wealthy, large Roman city at the time of Jesus. He could have picked disciples from there, but he didn't. He picked them from the backwaters of Galilee from tiny little villages. That's not an accident. It is significant. And not only did he pick unexpected disciples, he gave them very unexpected priorities. You say, like, what? Well, go back to chapter 5 for just a second. Matthew arranges his entire gospel around five sermons of Jesus. We call it the teaching gospel because there's more of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew than any other gospel. Probably scholars estimate, take a guess that he might have arranged his gospel around five sermons to mirror the five books of the Torah because Matthew's writing with Jews in mind. But in his longest sermon for his disciples, Jesus is very clear about his priorities. If you call yourself a follower, and these are very unexpected priorities. For example, chapter 5, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he announces these kinds of priorities if we call ourselves a follower. We're told in verse 1, He's talking to his disciples here. And then he says in verse 3, Blessed are the, what? Poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. When's the last time you mourned? Especially the context here is mourning over our sin. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Or how about this one? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Young people, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Mom and dad, grandparents, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Kids, do you? That's who's blessed is Jesus. That's his priorities. And then how about verse 7? Blessed are the merciful. I'm not the best at showing mercy. Something I continue to pray about. A lot of us aren't very good at showing mercy. He says that's, the, that's his priority list for his followers. And they will be showing mercy. And the list goes on and on. In fact, if you go over to verse 43... The knife goes in deeper. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, you is 
Anybody who says they're a follower of Jesus, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That is a very unexpected priority list for a very unexpected group of disciples. And that list of disciples would include us if we know Christ as Savior. I know not everybody here is born-again Christian, but if you are, this is what we're called to. I'm going to look at one other, and then we'll stop, and that is his unexpected mission, and that is in chapter 16. And to say an unexpected mission is a gross understatement because this was way off the radar list. It's so off the radar list that when he announces it, Peter rebukes him and claims he doesn't know what he's talking about. Actually has the audacity to rebuke the Son of God, believing that Jesus had it wrong about why he came. Matthew 16, verse 21 to 25. They are up at this point in northern Israel. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, and this is what he started telling them. Here he's laying his agenda out. They had not gotten it yet. He had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law. And what is it he's telling them he had to do? What's the text say? That he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Nobody saw that coming. Again, that is not at all what they were looking for. They're not even close. This is an oppressed people. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Lord, never, this will never happen to you. What has been prophesied, what the prophets had spoken, what Jesus came and announced was his mission. Peter has the audacity, the foolishness, the sinfulness to take him aside and rebuke him and say, that's not your agenda, that's not your mission. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples some very hard words. And if you're a disciple, if we're disciples, these are hard words for us. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Look at the verse. Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must be killed and raised on the third day. The, the rest of the New Testament fills out the picture of why he had to be killed. He wasn't just killed as an example. He came to live, fulfill the law, and then die as the perfect sacrifice to reconcile God's people to himself. That's why he came and lived and died. And again, this is shocking. Again, it's so shocking, Peter rebukes him, thinks he has it all wrong. Why? Because that is not at all. Even his closest guys who've been following him, still, they're looking for Rambo. They're looking for the Terminator. They're looking for G.I. Joe. They're not looking for this. And again, I just, to, to try to emphasize, unless you've lived under foreign oppression, or the closest thing perhaps for an American, would be to talk to somebody who's lived under foreign oppression. You, we can't appreciate how visceral the reaction is to living under a military dominance that's in our face constantly. 
But if you talk to people like who lived through the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, if you talk to people who lived through the Polish uprising in the 1980s, if you've walked on the streets of Russia, as Becky and I have, and see the people, or been in Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square and, and, and realized what happened in 1989, it's hard for us to understand how desperate you are when you are being oppressed by foreign invaders who are living in your midst and monitoring and watching your every move. And it gives you a little bit of sympathy for why the people wanted a military liberator. They were, they were desperate. I mean, this was on the front burner for them. And let me give you an example for how desperate they were. We call this Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And, and what do we do on Palm Sunday? We have kids come in, and what do they wave around? Palm branches, right? Why? Because Jesus came into Jerusalem in his Mercedes, right? That's what the prosperity preachers preached. That's not what he came in. He came in on a donkey. And what was being waved when he came in? Palm branches. Why? Well, this goes back to the intertestamental period and the Maccabees, but it was a sign of salvation. And what did the here's the key. What were the people chanting as he came in and waving palm branches? What were they chanting? Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Now, you might think that's a theological declaration. It wasn't. You might think that was a biblical request, a spiritual request. It wasn't. It was a political declaration. What they meant was save us from Rome. Save us from our circumstances. They didn't want salvation from their sins. They wanted salvation from their situation. Messiah was supposed to come and defeat Rome, not be killed by Rome. And when you start putting that all together, you realize how much Jesus just shattered expectations constantly over and over and over again. And it wasn't, by the way, hear this, young people, hear this. It wasn't just that he died. It's even more so how he died. Some of us know this. Some of us don't really know this. Obviously, there was capital punishment under the Roman Empire. There was different ways to do it depending on who you were. But they saved a particular form of capital punishment for a special class of people. In fact, there was a few classes of people that fit this. They saved crucifixion, which is a brutal method of capital punishment, for certain people. Rebellious slaves, conquered enemies, and notorious criminals. And they saved it on purpose for those folks because it wasn't the point wasn't just to execute them it was to execute them publicly naked and utterly humiliate them and their family and to make a point we're Rome or we're whoever you don't cross us or this is what happens to you and Jesus Messiah died crucified nailed alive naked put right along a roadside a major thoroughfare and that's why they put sign right over his head, what he had done, who he was. And you begin to see from birth to death, Jesus Messiah shattered virtually all expectations for who Messiah would be. An unexpected family tree, unexpected parents, unexpected birth, unexpected disciples, an unexpected priority list for those disciples, and an unexpected mission. And it all serves, ladies and gentlemen, young people, as a powerful reminder that the Savior came for regret-filled sinners. Let me ask you a question. Are you a regret-filled sinner? Some of us here today are living with some pretty heavy regrets in life. 
He came for common people, for nobodies. He came for moral failures. I'm a moral failure. You're a moral failure. He came for that. The very first person, Jesus openly revealed himself to as Messiah, was who? It was a Samaritan woman. They were called half-breeds. Jews hated them. And she was a Samaritan woman who had been sexually immoral. She'd had a number of husbands and divorced, and she was living with yet another lover. That's the first person Jesus chose, and the Holy Spirit chose to show us that in John chapter 4. And the very last person he publicly reveals himself to is a notorious thief dying next to him on a cross. Again, from birth all the way through to death, the Scriptures tell us over and over again, He came for the common, the ordinary, the moral failures, the nobodies of this world like us. So, here's my closing question. You ready? Here's our summons. Let's land this plane. I'm going to phrase it this way, a little differently than I normally do. I'm going to phrase it this way. Young people, kids, adults, have you yet been awakened to the love of a Savior who came to die for shame-filled moral failures? Have you yet been awakened to the love of a Savior who came to die for shame-filled moral failures? Matthew 11, Jesus gives this invitation. Hear this. Whether you're born again or not, whether you're a Christian or not, hear this. Come unto me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. There are a lot of us in this room that are weary this morning. Weary in terms of relationships that are broken. Weary because of moral sin in our life or sexual sin. Weary because of marital strife and tension or tension in our family or broken relationships. Weary perhaps financially or medically. On and on the list could go. Jesus says, come unto me if you're weary and I will give you rest. When the Bible talks about rest, by the way, it means basically two things. It means, first of all, peace with God, that's forgiveness, and then the peace of God. That's joy. Now, the question is, well, how how do you come? If Jesus says, come to me, how do you do it? Well, he gives us the answer in Matthew 16. We read it. Let me read it one more time. Here's how you come to Jesus. If you've never heard this explained clearly, he says it just this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, that's repentance, and take up their cross and follow me. That's belief. I'm going to close today with the words of one of my favorite preachers because when I read this paragraph in one of his sermons recently, it's one of those times when you're like sitting in a recliner and you're like, yeah, that says it. It comes from Chuck. Charles Spurgeon. He lived in London a long time ago, pastored the largest church in the world in the 1800s. This is from a sermon you've never heard of. It was just an ordinary sermon he preached April 23rd, 1882. I was reading it a couple months ago. It was, he's preaching from Exodus 3, the burning bush, and the title of the sermon was Israel's Cry and God's Answer. And as he got to the end of the sermon, he just nailed it in this paragraph which was just taken down by uh, scribes sitting there. So here's how you come to Christ from Charles Spurgeon back in 1882. Listen to this. He says it so well. Quote, Sinner, 
That's all of us here. Tell God your misery even now and He will hear your story. He's willing to listen even to that sad, wretched story of yours and about your many sins, your hardness of heart, and your rejections of Christ. Tell Him for He will hear it. Tell Him what it is you want, that you want large mercy. I love that phrase. That you want great forgiveness. Just lay your whole case before Him. Don't hesitate for a single moment. He will hear it, and He will be attentive to the voice of your cry. Close quote. I like that. Have you been awakened to the love of a Savior who came to give His life for shame-filled moral failures? That is how we come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if you've never done that, make today the day you cross over from being religious to being saved You cross over from hell to heaven and eternal life.